Welcome to The Breadwinners, the podcast about the never-ending hustle and its impact on all aspects of our lives. From our financial life, to our relationships, to our kids and our health, we're interested in what it takes to keep everything going. This podcast is about women, working, money, and family, and in every episode, we consider the research and share our takes on what we're learning every day about breadwinning. I'm Jennifer Owens. I write about working, wellness, and women, and founded the Working Mother Research Institute. And most days, I'm joined by my co-host, Raquel Ellison. But on this episode of The Breadwinners, I'm joined by Christina Libby, Chief Science Officer at Hypergiant, an awesomely named tech company that's been called a real-life Stark Industries as it works on an Iron Man-like helmet for astronauts and works on an AI-powered bioreactor that converts carbon dioxide into algae. I can't believe I said all those words all in one sentence, and an intergalactic internet, which I feel like is a schoolhouse rock song in the making. So uh, we'll have to see, all of which is to say, welcome, Christina. Thank you for joining the Breadwinners today. Thank you so much for having me. It's, It's a pleasure to be here. So at the Breadwinners, we start our conversations often with a stat. And usually, sometimes it's a, it's a happy stat. Anytime you're talking about women in STEM, it always starts from a, a tough number, which I saw the current number now is about a quarter of computing-related jobs are held by women. And then if you slice and dice for race and ethnicity, it's all in the single digits. So I thought it might be very nice, uh, especially now you've been, just been promoted to chief science officer, to give us a little of your background as a, as a breadwinning woman in science. How did you get here? Uh, Circuitously, for sure. (laughs) So my master's degree is in international security of the war and peace kind, not the kind. And when I graduated university, I really thought I would go, you know, work for the CIA or the DOD or something like that. And that didn't happen. And instead, I ended up working at a nonprofit and then getting into social media really early and becoming, you know, developing just a bit of a facility with technology. And then Mm -hmm. that ultimately led to a position at Microsoft where, you know, I really was in on the cutting edge of technology at the moment. Yeah. And... That led to just a real fascination with what is what is happening in technology and, and what's happening on the cutting edge and learning that you can be in that space without being someone who has an engineering degree or without being someone who is a scientist and that there is a big need for people who can be comfortable having scientific conversations yes. and having them more broadly with the public. And I think that's really where I have found myself the most comfortable is, is being someone who is really just a question asker. Um, I'm a mm-hmm. bit of a, you know, something like a journalist, right? Where you're just trying to ask questions and understand what's going on and then be able to relate that information to other people. And And ultimately, that led to my job now, where I both look at what's happening from a scientific perspective and and how that's developing, but also how that applies to a business and what the strategy is like for sort of where we want to invest time and money. Well, and so what does a chief science officer do? Because it is a super cool title. I think it's very different depending on where you work. Yeah. For me, for where we are at Hypergiant, my job is really about looking at different types of science and technology and, and understanding where it fits within a broader trend or social framework. Yeah. And then helping to advise on business decisions. So, you know, there's an opportunity in this area to do X, Y, and Z thing and bringing those opportunities 
to the other people on the leadership team and just having a kind of a, a finger on the pulse of what's happening in science and technology and understanding how it works together. And then also understanding how it works within sort of the cultural and social and political fabric in which we find ourselves. I think yeah. many people who have this job probably do much, much more scientific things and that there's a really broad cross section of, of ways that, yeah. that a science officer job could roll out. But mine, because of my background, I think sits more in connecting science with, with trend and culture and storytelling and, and business strategy. Well, and hypergiant seems, well, you, they're big thinkers. So it's, <laughs> you probably have to rein them in a little bit when you're trying to say, now, what are we actually trying to say here? You know, while you guys are thinking the world's biggest thoughts, I need to be able to explain this. <laughs> yeah, I think I sort of veer into the category of being someone who really loves big ideas. And so yeah. I love that part of the company. I love that it's filled with big dreamers and people who think, huge, wild, impossible thoughts. Yeah. I do really love that. I try not to rein that in, but I think, you know, it is a lot about figuring out there might be this big, beautiful, wonderful thing we want to do. Can we do it? Is the world right? right. Is there opportunity for it? Right. And so it's balancing both of those things at once of, of loving big ideas and also knowing sometimes that the world isn't quite ready for those big ideas. Now, because it's just us girls, you know, science is subjective, but how we frame it can be very subjective, like that you bring a point of view that comes from your background, your gender, your experience. I always think that there's always a need for more voices at the table, but it also in voices in how you're speaking these stories. I like, do you feel that or, or am I just guessing as a non-science person? No, I think you're spot on, but I'd also like a bit to challenge the first assumption that science is objective. Okay. I think we do research to get results that are objective. Right. Okay. Yeah. The questions we ask are always subjective. So interesting. When we talk about something like women's health, yeah, yeah, there we know a lot about how the male body works, and we apply those reasonings to the female body. But there is not a huge amount of scientific research about the female body, and the reason for that is because the science scientists aren't asking, haven't historically always been asking objective questions about how a woman's body works or or looking at the diversities between men and women's bodies and trying to you know take into account that maybe women have a bunch of different yeah. physical makeups that would require different levels or you know that women have menstrual cycles sure. right so there's right. hormonal levels at all times so and that is true of very very i think really every aspect of science which is we're asking questions through the subjective lens of our experience. And so mm. we may be able to get objective results to those questions, but the questions are always subjective. We're never asking like a pure question in a vacuum. So even, I mean, we are looking at things like there are objective questions in science. Sure. Right? Like there yeah. are some things which are like, yeah, is the light on or is the light off? You know, <laughs> the questions that we choose to ask, asking a question about gravity rather than asking a question about something else, there is a subjectiveness in that. And so I think sometimes when we look at science, we think of it as a pure discipline. But I would argue that it is not, that all all avenues of humaning are flavored by our history, right? And so yeah. there is, is a massive subjectivity in any time we pursue any kind of, of academic or, or intellectual pursuit. And that 
that is not in any way to discount science or to say right, that, right. That, like I am a hundred percent believer in science, but I'm also a hundred percent believer that science shouldn't be heralded above all sort of other aspects of academic study. And I think one of the problems we've really gotten into as a society in the last, probably particularly the last 20 years is elevating STEM education above arts education and and deciding that it yeah. is more valuable for society. And I, one of the interesting things about being someone who comes from a more uh, traditional arts background into science and technology is that I do bring a very different point of view to the conversation. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think that has a lot of value. And I think a lot of people, you know, we talk about artificial intelligence or we talk about space exploration and yeah. so that is kind of plays over. I talk I met in a NATO group um, focused on cybersecurity. And you, know, you talk about those issues and people just think, oh gosh, that's too much for me. I can't wrap my head around it. Right. right. It's too yeah. Yes. And the problem with that is is anytime we socially step away from the conversation, what we leave is a small amount of powerful people to make the decisions on our behalf. And often in very niche industries, those are people who all have very similar backgrounds and maybe their mm-hmm. technical backgrounds and they're not necessarily thinking about the problem in the same way that someone with an art right. background or a history background or, or a philosophy background would think about the issue. And so I think that is something that socially we need to realign against because I think it's a very I mean, it's a dangerous place for us to be. I yeah, well and how can you not agree? <laughs> Come on, people. <laughs> but I think I see that in uh I was a business reporter for a long time and they're I would read the SEC filings, lots of lingo, lots of concepts like accounting concepts and, and the like. And I think that seems like they're spending their money way faster than it's coming in, which seemed like I like I, I'm not, I, you know, I like almost looking around like, should I am I? I'm not that smart on the, you know, <laughs> doubting my own business. And then they they go out of business because they were spent, no matter how you spun it, they were spending their money faster than they were bringing it in. And that was a lot of, uh, on paper, literally on paper, the math, it was all just math, adding up numbers. And, uh, and somehow you made it seem more complicated, the core concepts. And it makes me think of that, that the math seemed big, but the concepts were kind of clear once you kind of got through the jargon. And science, I guess, should kind of be the same way. We should understand these concepts impact us, no matter what the how difficult the equations might be. Yeah, I'm working on a book at the moment. And, and one of the things that I think is really interesting about so many industries and conversations is that we make them all seem so very complicated. And I think yes. we do that to, to build a moat, right? To show a level of expertise and, and to make it more difficult for other people to question and criticize, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that overcomplication of so many systems is actually where we find ourselves in, in a lot of trouble because I don't really think anything is done in isolation. And so right. the idea that people have like, oh, we'll do this little thing in isolation, you know, no one else will really understand. It's okay, yeah. right? It's just think it's a really poor way of thinking about the world. I think one of the, the ideas that I really think about a lot is, you know, we're, we're a society that's built on sort of freedom and individualism. And, mm-hmm. you know, we all think that... Traps, yep. Right, the whole, you know, yeah. those things are twinned that like, 
being an individual means being free. And yet freedom comes out of being in a safe and secure community where you have the freedom to do what you want because you live in a place that secures you, right? Like like your transportation works and food you can get where you need and you can, you know, fly where you want to and your dollar is valued at something. And so then you have freedom to navigate and pursue your own dreams and desires. And that's sort of the only way that the individual can really be successful. I mean, the other way is to completely step away from society and and entirely off your own. But I think that is unnatural for a species that has relied on collective living for a Mm -hmm. long time, right? And, And so I think sometimes I look at these industries and I think, oh gosh, you know, they're really like, feel like they can go on their own and like that they're leading the path. And and then we often get into a, a huge amount of trouble that way. I think, you know, finance did that for a very long time. And yep. then now there's a bunch of ethical rulings and SEC, you know, like all of these rulings yeah. that, and how it can operate. And I think we're seeing that a lot with technology companies as well, who think, you know, that they can live, sort of they can set the path forward or yep. yep. Or that it's not interconnected into the world. That decisions that they make are are isolated, just like you're talking about, like big decisions and big impacts, but it's isolated and we don't have responsibility for how it ripples out. I think that's what the general consumer, I'll tell you, I was once at a friends of my local library meeting. It was, they were bringing together all the friends, you know, people running the fundraising and the community volunteers for each of the libraries in Brooklyn. And I was sitting next to a lady who came from another part of Brooklyn and she just looked like a normal lady, like not like a, I don't know what a tech lady would look like, but she didn't have a hoodie on or anything like that. And she was telling her girlfriend about how to protect your identity online. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is like the suburban mom kind of thing. And she was speaking about this and I thought that's rippled out. And this was years ago when the first bubble up of, hey, what's happening with our data online and the like. And I thought, oh, see, now the general consumer is now starting to ask these questions. And I think you could do that for anything, for climate change, for space, for the like. People care about these questions and their voices are part of the discussion. Yes. But you do feel excluded a little bit when the words get big. (laughs) And I think it is so powerful what you just said, which is that people care. And I think the thing is like, they do care, but they sometimes don't know why or how or to yeah. be involved. And we think it's so much easier to just rush, you know, to use a tech phrase to move fast and break things yeah. than it is to collectively think about the response and sort of the, not just the response to that technology, but mm-hmm. also like the role that what you're doing plays in the world. And I would say this is a lesson I am learning and is largely impacted by I over quarantine started taking a Judaism conversion course. And we don't need to go into like a religious. Yeah. And I don't know if I will convert to Judaism, but I'm really drawn to it by sort of the, I think I work in technology. There's not a lot of moral underpinning to mm-hmm. that industry, right? Like there's not sort of a shared sense of, of what we're morally doing for the world or how that impacts the world. And there's a really interesting part of Judaism that is about taking care of the world, that it's like your responsibility to care for the world and what you do has an impact 
and as yeah. an impact, right? And so there's this idea about the public mind and, and taking care of the public mind and that it's everyone's responsibility to be concerned about and caring for the collective public mind. Mm-hmm. And I think we look at a lot of technology and a lot of people really, um, a lot of technology companies really drive forward an idea and, um, and don't often game play out the horrible scenarios of that idea a decade right now, right and i think you know facebook is a classic example of it started out as a network to connect kids in college and yep. then now it is you know very clear platform being manipulated by the russian government in the lead up to our elections and like that's not political that's fact and yeah. and could mark zuckerberg and team have gotten there in the early 2000s when they were launching facebook Probably not, but should we have game planned a bunch of scenarios along the way to make sure this didn't happen and to involve a lot more voices in a technology that ultimately has a huge impact on our society? Yeah. Probably yes. Right? Yeah. And like, but part of that is also we can't blindly assume that technology leaders have our best interests at heart. Yeah. You know, and we can't let them dictate the future. And I mean, I, I do work in technology, but I think we can't just assume that technologists know the future that we should create and that we need right. like a real community. And that it's objective. I think that's the lesson a lot of us learned that there is a subjectivity, say like in Google searches, you know, if it's it's all code. If you if the code is brought in by a certain point of view, then it spits out answers with that point of view filtered. And like, oh, you know, that the technology isn't a Objective. I guess it, it's just constant lesson. Yeah, it's like artificial intelligence, right? So machine learning only works off the data it receives. Mm. And if it gets bad data, it gets a bad result. And our community is no different, right? So, so there is this design theory field called speculative thinking, right? Or speculative design, which is about just kind of pretending that anything could happen in the future and asking the question of like, what would you want the future to look like? And so few of us, I think, engage in this exercise of like, what would we yeah. the future to look like? There's a, a great data point from Michael Hyatt, which is that people spend 24 full days planning their weddings, but on average, six hours planning their lives. <laughs> I was like, only 24 days? <laughs> right. I mean, exactly. Right. And then, you know, we have these sort of cultural narrative stories about why we're human, like why we're alive. And one of those stories is to get married and procreate. Yeah. It's great. That's really important, right? In sort of building a society. And and I think for a lot of people having a really fulfilling life. But there is also this thing of like as a species, we really need to think about and organize what kind of world we want to build. And when you look at something like artificial intelligence, you look at a, a model like China, and China has a very strict plan for where they want to go with technology and specifically with artificial intelligence. Hmm. When you look at America, there is no overarching plan for what that future vision could look like. And there's a bunch of different technology companies who are just building stuff against their own future vision of what they want to bring to the world. The end result of that is that probably China is going to achieve a better result than us. And that is because they have a focused plan for the future that they want. Right. I think the thing that's more important than developing a technology future for what we want as a country is we need to develop a future vision for what we want holistically. 
So where do we want America to be a hundred years from now? What does that look like? Who do we want to be as America? Do we want to be a country that is fortified by walls around us? Do we want to be a country where there's no immigration? Do we want to be a country that is the most technologically advanced in the world? Do we want to be a country that has clean water and um, a functioning satellite system, right? Like there's yep. a whole bunch of questions there. What it really comes down to, I believe, is a question of, of morals of like, what do we believe in? Like what mm-hmm. do we believe is the reason that we are like a human species on this planet? And like, what do we want to do with that? If we ask right. ourselves a question of that collectively as a nation, and we look, you know, so far beyond all of this sort of like day-to-day politics or day-to-day individual worries, then we're in pursuit of some sort of excellence. And again, Mm -hmm. we can leverage our technology industry. We can leverage the economy. We can leverage individuals' insights and creativity and academia and, and all of those. It's an act of collective formation. And I think right now, one of the challenges to that is we're so mired in day-to-day politics. You know, you, you you look at our election cycle now, and one of the things we see is just like a real, I think, just short-sightedness about the world, right? Like everything we're doing is so responsive to incoming pressures instead of forward thinking. And, and that is largely in part because of four-year political terms, which we should keep, but also is, I think, real short-sightedness on behalf of the population that I almost yeah. think we've forgotten that we are capable of great collective action. And that if we engage together and we develop a collective vision, we can move forward against that. And that is not advocating for sort of like a socialist view of the world or, or sort of a particular political view of the world. It's just arguing for like the great power of humanity. Like the thing we do really well is when we decide against a collective goal that we're going to do that. And I think, you know, climate change is probably the biggest and most passionate issue of which we can respond. But there is something very different to responding to the pressures of climate change versus saying this is the future that we can move towards. One of the things we have to do to get there is we have to figure out climate change first. And that's like a totally different narrative on collective action because we've just expanded the timeline. And I think in doing that, that allows for people to feel more connected and more creative. And and that also moves us away from any one of those niche industries being the only right. future. Oh, man, which is and and that's why we can have a voice. You know, we meaning the non-engineers, just I'm concerned. I'm I'm a mom. I'm concerned. I'm a cat owner. I mean, who cares? I have the wherewithal to learn about the issues and a voice and thoughts to share that we are all part of it. Right. And everyone can learn and everyone can have a cause, right? Yep. You don't have to be part of whatever the cause of the moment is, right? Like you do have to be part of something because that's how democracy functions is when you say, I want to be involved and maybe climate change is something you don't care about and you care about like ASPA and cat health. Awesome. Like get out there, get involved and realize that like being involved in the conversation is part of it and you can do it in any way you want to. Like I think a good example of this is 
during the quarantine. So I'm an artist. I make, I paint, I oil paint, but yeah. I also make these like floral, like I make things with flowers, like public art with flowers. And which I only started doing during the pandemic. And it was because the academic part of me who studied international security and understands disenfranchised grief, which is like grief that we put off in a, in a moment of pressure often. Mm-hmm. Before. But in this case, we didn't have funerals or shiva or sort of any sort of mourning process when all of these COVID patients were dying. And right. so that creates long-term PTSD impacts in society. And I was like, I'm very worried about this. Like we are yeah. in a fractured, lonely, depressed society. I don't think we can handle also adding like a huge amount of people suffering from a disenfranchised grief over failure to mourn. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create some sort of art that is about this moment that I think will help other people. And so I made these like flower hearts around the city that were meant as like a a way to help people mourn, but also sort of like a, an active blessing on the city and a way for sort of some hope and just, especially when we were all quarantined. Oh, lovely. Yeah. But when we were all quarantined for people to feel connected. And what it did is it like knit me closer with the community. And these people came and found me and connected with me who I like otherwise would have never yeah. engaged with if not for this. And so the point of that story is like, not that my floral hearts are, you know, this sort of Andy Warhol, right? Like they're, yeah, they're yeah, yeah. Like, like, you know, I'm not, they're not the, you know, pinnacle of art at the moment, but they are a way that I could express a feeling and engage in a conversation and meet other people and help them and respond to them. Right. And like, we all have things. Like I then started this whole floral thing. I like made a lot of flower arrangements for the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, we can all sort of find a thing we can do and a cause yeah. we care about and a moment for us to engage and just start doing that. And I think what happens is that gives voice and, and there are lots of people who have different voices than mine, but the thing too is it gets dialogue. And that is what I think we are really suffering from at the moment in America is a, is a lack of actual engaged, like listening and hearing dialogue. And that is pivotal, I think, to sort of creating this big future moment, this, this opportunity for us to really ask what we want America to be and, and then to step into the future vision that we decide. Well, and on that marching order to us, I want to thank you for having this dialogue with us because I, man, you already got me thinking. So <laughs> thank you for joining us on The Breadwinners. Our guest today was Christina Libby of Hypergiant. Uh, you'll find links to what we were talking about today in the episode description, wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit us anytime at thebreadwinnerspodcast.com to ask a question, share your story, offer some feedback. How are you making it work? What do you think? thinking about in terms of the big questions, especially around tech, we would love to know. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review it. Let us know what you think about the breadwinners. Help us tell the stories that mean the most to you. And until next week, keep hustling. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.